0: In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and also put it in writing. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Any of his people among you may go up to Jerusalem in Judah. And build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem, and may their God be with them. And in any locality where survivors may now be living, the people are to provide them with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with freewill offerings for the temple of God in Jerusalem. Then the family heads of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and Levites, everyone whose heart God had moved prepared to go up and build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. All their neighbors assisted them with articles of silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with valuable gifts, in addition to all the freewill offerings. Moreover, King Cyrus brought out the articles belonging to the temple of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and had placed in the temple of his God. Cyrus, king of Persia, had them brought out by Mithridath, the treasurer, who counted them out to Sheshbazar, the Prince of Judah. This was the inventory. Gold dishes, 30. Silver dishes, 1,000. Silver pans, 29. Gold bowls, 30. Matching silver bowls, 410. Other articles, 1,000. In all, there were 5,400 articles of gold and of silver. Sheshbazar bought all these along with the exiles when they came up from Babylon to Jerusalem.
1: Thanks, Paddy. Um, Do keep Ezra, chapter 1. We're going to have a look at chapter 2 as well. I didn't uh, feel cruel enough to make Paddy read chapter 2, but we're going to look at chapter 2 as well today. Uh, Keep that open in front of you, and let me pray as we come uh, to God's Word. Our loving and gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for uh, the truth that we've already heard this morning, uh, that you are the God who speaks, who makes promises, and most importantly, Father, the God who keeps your promises. Father, thank you that we can trust you, that we can trust your word, and we pray that you would help us to listen as you speak to us through it now, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I don't know about you, but um, I really love a good comeback story. It can be anything, it can be a, a film, it can be a sports event, it can be a book, any story where it looks like all hope is lost, where defeat is inevitable, Uh, but then something unexpected, something dramatic happens, and right at the last minute, there's a comeback. Against all the odds, uh, the underdog comes out on top. I love a good comeback story, and kids, hopefully you've got one of the sheets Uh, in front of you, or with you, or around you, uh, the first thing on there is to think of a good comeback story. Think of a film, or or a book, or something that you enjoy, a good comeback story. Uh, They're great, aren't they? They're exciting. Uh, And actually, as as a Christian, comeback stories take on a whole new level of significance, don't they? Uh, As you read through the Bible, or, or as you look at the history of the church you see that God is in the business of comebacks. Uh, Time and time again, it's at the point when all hope seems lost, when things look their darkest, that God steps in and turns things around. Whether it's uh, Joseph going from a forgotten prisoner in Egypt to the prime minister, or whether it's the Israelites going from slavery and oppression to peace in the promised land. The Bible is full of comebacks. And it's not just the Bible where we see this. Think of the Reformation or the Welsh Revival or the explosion of the church across countries like China today. God is in the business of comebacks. And so as Christians, that is what we long for, isn't it? We long for the fortunes of God's people to, to be turned around. Uh, today, in a society where God is increasingly pushed aside as the, the church becomes uh, seen as irrelevant, even offensive, we sit here longing for a comeback. We long for the gospel uh, to take root in people's lives. We, we long for hearts and for communities to be transformed by the good news of of Jesus Christ. That's what we long for. We long for a comeback. And it's that longing that was felt very much by God's people in the time of Ezra. You see, as we start this new series looking at the book of Ezra, we find God's people in a pretty dark place, a pretty low place in their history. They are exiles in the land of Babylon. And already, if you've been with us over the, the past few weeks in January, hopefully your ears have just pricked up, because we've just been listening, haven't we, to the prophet Habakkuk. a Habakkuk who stood looking at the imminent invasion of Babylon. Uh, the Babylonians were coming. Uh, they were coming to invade God's people, to take them off into exile. And so around 70 years before the start of Ezra, Habakkuk watched as the the Babylonian army tore across the ancient world, uh, conquering and capturing all in their path, including the land of Judah. God's people were defeated and, and carried off into exile, which means the time between what we've just been looking at in Habakkuk and Ezra has been incredibly dark. Things are not looking good for God's people, and that means they're not looking good for God's promises. You see, throughout history, God had said that that He would fulfil His purposes through His chosen people. They were going to be a holy nation, a, a treasured possession, a blessing to all the nations of the earth. But as we arrive in Ezra, were well, there? They're captive to some pagan king who cares nothing for their God. The temple, the the place of God's presence on earth, the, the place of forgiveness and life, destroyed. And so with God's people in exile, it seems like God's promises have failed. And yet the stage is set for a comeback. The stage is set for a comeback, and so as we begin this journey through the book of Ezra, we should do so holding our breath. We should come in eager anticipation each week as we see what God has in store for his people, what he will do next for his people. And my hope is that as we do that, as we see how God acted back then, we'll also see how he continues to act today. After all, as we've seen on Sunday evenings, 1 Peter describes us, the church, as exiles. God's chosen people living as strangers and aliens in the world. Longing for the day that Christ returns to take us to our true home with him. And so as exiles, we need to see how God continues to work for his people in his world. We need to be reminded where our hope and our confidence should be as we journey through this life. And my prayer is that Ezra will help us to do that. So with that in mind, let's jump in and look at Ezra chapter 1, verse 1, because there we see first that God moves to fulfill his promises. God moves to fulfill his promises. Ezra 1, verse 1 says this, In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, In order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and also to put it in writing. For nearly 70 years, God's people have been living in exile. Their temple lies in ruins. Their God seems to have abandoned them. But then just as all hope is lost, verse 1 says there's a new king in town. Cyrus, king of Persia. The mighty Babylon, the the invincible Babylon, has been defeated. And Persia is the new superpower. And with a change in power comes a change in policy. Verse 2, this is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. And he has appointed me to build a temple for him in Jerusalem In Judah, any of his people among you may go up to Jerusalem in Judah and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem, and may their God be with them. This new King Cyrus declares that he will send the Jews back to Jerusalem, back to rebuild their temple in their homeland. And it's already this dramatic turnaround for God's people. No longer will they be captives in a foreign land. No longer will they be separated from their temple. Finally, they can go back home. It's a dramatic turnaround, but for any Jew that knew their Bible, it's not unexpected. As we're reminded in verse 1, all this happens to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah. Like Habakkuk, Jeremiah was a prophet who spoke ...to the people of Judah. And he warned of God's coming judgment. He warned that the Babylonians would come. But at the same time, he also reassured God's people... ...that this judgment, it wasn't going to last forever. And so in Jeremiah 25, we read this. The Lord Almighty says, Because you have not listened to my words... ...I will summon all the peoples of the north. And my servant, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon declares the Lord. I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants and against all the surrounding nations. This whole country will become a desolate wasteland and these nations will serve the king of Babylon 70 years. But when 70 years are fulfilled, I will punish the king of Babylon and his nation, the land of the Babylonians, for their guilt, declares the Lord. Before Nebuchadnezzar sets foot in Judah. The Lord says this occupation is only going to last 70 years. As we read that, 70 years could be a, a precise number. It could also be talking about a generation. Either way, God has promised to bring his people back. To end the Babylonian rule, to restore the people to the land. God promised that. And in Ezra chapter 1, we see that's exactly what happens. God moves this pagan king Cyrus so that his promises are fulfilled. And just look at how he does it. Verse 4. And in any locality where survivors may now be living, the people are to provide them with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with freewill offerings for the temple of the God in Jerusalem. And then look down at verse 6. And their neighbors assisted them with articles of silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with valuable gifts, in addition to all the freewill offerings. Moreover, King Cyrus brought out the articles belonging to the temple of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and placed in the temple of his God. You see, not only does Cyrus say that people can go back to their home, back to Jerusalem, he also ensures they have absolutely everything they need to rebuild the temple, Uh, everything they need to be able to worship their God when they get there. And as we read these verses, we might think, well, this just is a bit far fetched, isn't it? Uh, This just sounds too good to be true. Cyrus, uh, he must have been converted. He must have believed in Israel's God to make a a proclamation like this one. But that's not the case. Hundreds of years before this, God told the prophet Isaiah that he would raise up a man called Cyrus to set his people free. But just listen to what he says about Cyrus in Isaiah 45 For the sake of Jacob, my servant, of Israel, my chosen, I summon you, that Cyrus, by name, and bestow on you a title of honour, though you do not acknowledge me. I am the Lord, there is no other. You see, this King Cyrus, he he doesn't acknowledge the Lord. He's not acting in chapter 1 from a position of faith, but a position of pragmatism. Around 100 or so years ago, archaeologists discovered something called the Cyrus Cylinder. Uh, When it's open again, you can go and see it in the British Museum. And the Cyrus Cylinder shows us that this was simply his policy of occupation. This is what he did with the people he conquered. He would send them back to their home country to worship their own gods. That was his way of trying to keep the peace. No, Cyrus didn't believe in the God of the Bible one bit. But that in no way meant that God was not able to use him to achieve his purposes. Despite what Cyrus thought he was doing, it was the Lord who moved his heart to send the people back. And he does that so that his word will be fulfilled. So that his promises will be kept. And so one of the really big things that we're going to see as we go through this book of Ezra is that God moves to fulfill his promises. God moves to fulfill his promises. He is the God who can and does move empires and nations, kings and rulers, in order to fulfill, to keep his promises to his people. A month ago, we celebrated a time in history when God moved the heart of another world leader, didn't we? A world leader to to call a census so that uh, one pregnant woman could travel to Bethlehem and give birth to the promised Saviour. Our God is not a small God. He is not the God of Sunday mornings or the God just of Christians. He is not our personal power to help us get through the day. No, He is the God of the whole earth. He's the God who is more powerful than we can possibly imagine. And so he's the God we can trust, 100% trust, to keep every single one of his promises. Which means even when life seems chaotic and, and totally out of control, even when God's enemies seem to prosper around the world and in our country, that even when the church feels on its knees, weak and worthless, Ezra is going to remind us that God's word is true. His promises are sure. And we can trust him, no matter what. How do we do that? How do we trust God's promises on Monday morning? One big thing we can do is to pray. Pray when things feel like they're they're spinning out of control and we're just trying to hold life together, when we're not sure how we're going to get through another week of lockdown or another month of this, when you're worried that actually maybe this whole Christian thing was a mistake and life would just be easier if you just binned it all, when those moments come, and they will come, the best thing we can do is to pray. And and more specifically, to pray for the promises of God. Pray for the things God has promised. That is what Daniel did. Remember Daniel back last summer when we looked at him? Daniel was a man living in exile in Babylon. He, He was a man far from home. But he was a man who knew and trusted the promises of God. He knew what the Lord had said. He knew that exile wouldn't last forever. And so just listen to what he prayed. Now, our God, hear the prayers and petitions of your servant. For your sake, Lord, look with favor on your desolate sanctuary. Give ears, our God, and hear, open your eyes and see the desolation of the city that bears your name. We do not make requests of you because we are righteous, but because of Your great mercy. Lord, listen. Lord, forgive. Lord, hear and act. For your sake, my God, do not delay, because your city and your people bear your name. You see, Daniel knew God's promises, he knew that the judgment of Babylon would not last forever, and so he prayed. He prayed for God to act. He prayed for God to restore his people. Not because he was righteous, not because they were righteous, far from it. But because the Lord is merciful and he can be trusted and for the honor of his name. And so you see, it's God's promises that are the fuel for our prayer. It's as we read them and pray them back to God that we express our dependence on him. And that we learn what it is to trust him, whatever's in front of us. And it's as we pray that God moves to fulfill his promises. At Ezra 1, he moves the heart of a pagan king, Cyrus. And he also moves the hearts of his people. Just look at verse 5. Then the family heads of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose heart God had moved, prepared to go up and build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. You see, God answers prayer by moving the hearts of his people. And the result is that we have this Exodus-like journey out of slavery and back to the Promised Land. And so the second thing we're going to see in chapter 2 is that the people move, to worship their God. The people moved to worship their God. Not long after the first exodus from Egypt, the book of Numbers gives us this long list of people who journeyed back to the promised land. And here in Ezra 2, we find something very similar. Look at Ezra 2, verse 1. Now these are the people of the province who came up from the captivity of exiles, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had taken captive to Babylon. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to their own town. What follows in chapter 2 is a long list of names, a list which I'm also not going to try and read to you this morning. Uh, But as you read through it, which I'm sure you'll all do later on uh, this afternoon, just notice two things, two things in this long list. Uh, Who are they and why do they return? Who are they and why do they return? First, Who are these people? As you read through chapter 2, it it quickly becomes clear. This is not a complete list. Not every Jew living in Babylon decides, yep, I'm going to head back to Jerusalem. That's what I'm going to do. No, some, lots in fact, stay behind. Lots of them stay in Babylon. Because... By the time we reach Ezra chapter 2, God's people have been living in captivity for a whole generation. And many of them are born and bred in Babylon. And so Babylon, well, it's what they know. It's what they're used to, what they're, what they're comfortable with. They're settled, they're secure, they've, they've built a home, a life there. Why would they want to interrupt that? Why would they want to shake that up? No, lots of them stay in Babylon. But some don't. And the writer of Ezra wants us to know exactly who it is that went. By name, he says, these are the people. These are the ones who moved. These are the ones who believed God's promises and then acted on it. And his point is that that knowing God is in control, knowing that he keeps his promises, it doesn't lead us to inactivity. Uh, believing God's promises doesn't mean we'll sit back and just wait for life to happen around us. No. No, if we take God's word seriously, if we pray for the things he's promised, then we'll also act on them. We'll move. Just as the people in Ezra moved. Uh, but what do they move for? Uh, what was the point in all of this That's the second thing we need to see in chapter 2, why they moved. And the answer, I think, actually starts at the end of chapter 1. Because at the end of chapter 1, we're given what seems like a bit of a random list of pots and pans that the people brought back with them. But though the list might seem a little bit random, it's an important detail for us at the start of the book. Because those pots and pans, you see, are for the use in the temple in God's temple. Because back when Babylon invaded, King Nebuchadnezzar ransacked the temple of God. And he took all the gold and silver articles back to his country and put them on display in his temple. It was his way of saying, my God is bigger than your God. But here we're told that these things are being returned. Restored. They're, they're being sent back to Jerusalem. Jerusalem so that God's temple and therefore God's worship can be restored. And it's worship that is at the heart of the move back to Jerusalem. Uh, You you can see that through chapter 2 in places like verse 62, where uh, the people are determined to protect the purity of the priests. Or or if you flick to the end of chapter 2, you can see, that the very first thing that people do before they've even dropped their bags off in their new home is to give free will offerings to the rebuilding of the temple. Worship is the reason for the return. And again, this is a major theme that's going to come up throughout Ezra. That God moves to ensure that his people can worship him. God moves to ensure that his people can worship him because that is our purpose. That is what we are here for. God has designed us for worship. He's designed us to worship him. And so as we as we journey through Ezra this term, we also need to have our eye on the bigger picture. We need to see that that ultimately the way that God keeps his promises, ultimately the way that he enables people to worship him, is in sending his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so hundreds of years later, when a a woman meets Jesus at a well and asks him, where must I go to worship God? Jesus says, you no longer need to go to a place, but a person. It's as people come to Jesus that they are restored to a right relationship with God and able to worship him in spirit and in truth. You see, the ultimate way God has moved for his people is in sending his son. And it's in Jesus that all of God's promises are yes. All of God's promises are kept and fulfilled in him. And it's because of Jesus that we today, just as them then, can live our lives in wholehearted worship of God. We're going to see how that works and what that worship looks like today as we go through Ezra. But now let's pray to the God who moves.